Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. There was a hundred million dollars worth of gold stolen from an airport, and uh, I would like someone to come clean and let us know was that them? If it was, uh, I'm very sorry. What is this? I thought I was watching Goodfellas. Like, how did they get all that out of there? <laughs> the Lufthansa heist, right? That that does have a very Goodfellas vibe for sure. How much? How much gold was it? I know the dollar amount, but how much weight? Good time. That's a God, good question. You're the mathematician, Wicked. No, I don't know, man. I don't know what kind of conversions they're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably like a truckload, right? I think I think the real question is, is how much of it was lead? Are they going to go through and test it all? They'll probably, they'll probably sell it wholesale. One of their partners swaps it out for lead. You know how these movies go. You get in the wrong truck and all those bars are filled with like chocolate bars. I think they're just rocks, actually. Speaking of gold, yeah, go ahead, Peter. Since Alpha Zed and uh, John, since both of you guys are on stage, I do have a serious question, and you know, maybe you want to address it, maybe you don't. Um, but uh, maybe you could uh, uh, help me understand how and if um, OPEX expiring today um, potentially influences uh, um, the the price of Bitcoin, or how things, how that kind of works from the traditional. Uh, financial side, it seems very complicated to me, and maybe there's a simple explanation. Alpha said that's probably more your wheelhouse. Do you want to chat about that? Up to you. Yeah, and I, I be honest, I haven't been following the options market that closely recently, but uh, you know, usually uh, what happens is on expirations. I, I'm going to oversimplify, right, and then John can 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 dig deeper, but. Uh, on option expirations, uh, usually what you're going to look is that options are kind of like at the end of the day, very digital in nature. So, for example, you buy a call option on the S and P. Uh, again, I'm, I'm going to make this extremely simple, and it's it's much more complicated than that. But the, you buy a call option on the S and P, and then there are two things that can happen ex, at the expiration: either the price is going to be above your strike price, right? So let's say. Ronnie, let's say the strike price is 100 and then the S&P or whatever stock is at 110. That means that it's in the money. So you're $10 in the money. You're going to exercise that option because you have the option to buy it at 100 and then you can sell it at 110 in the market, right? While if it's below 100, if it's 99.99, you're not going to exercise that. If it's at 80, you're not going to exercise because you can buy at the market much lower than the price that it's actually uh, on your option. That's great. And again, even it's 
kind of digital in nature and kind of there's a day, there's a time, there's an exact time actually that you can expi- that you can exercise that option. Uh, and then again, I'm not going to get too much details. There are American options, European options, different kind of options. Mm-hmm. But on option expiration day, uh, you have huge volumes in some of these strikes. You are going to have um, kind of like people are going to be seeking that because they know if they get to a certain level. Uh, on the other side, there are a lot of people that need to hedge that exposure. Right? So, for example, let's say I sold you that option. Uh, I know that I need to deliver the S&P to you if you're going to be in the money. So as you're getting closer and closer to that 100 price, I'm going to have to be buying S&P to deliver to you because you have the option to, to buy and I have to sell. So I'll go and sell it to you. So and this is where I always thought that you had to have. Yeah, I always thought you had to have the, the stock to sell the option. No, no not like you can't sell an option. Unless... You can sell an okay. option without no. having anything, right? But you are going to be at risk. Uh, let's say it's just the two of us. You can buy an option and I'll be the seller to that option. And let's say, you know, it's just a hypothetical. Let's, let's say it's on gold, for example, not on a stock that we can buy, right? And there's no delivery. So what's going to happen at expiration is, and let's make it 100 again, because 100 is an easy number to see. So. If it's at above 100, uh, you're going to say, okay, I want to buy that a gold at uh, 100, 100 and sell it to you at 120, and I'm going to be in the, in the bucket for $20. So whoever holds a call option has technically unlimited upside, and whoever sells a call option has unlimited downside because price can go from 100 to 100, 300, 400, and so on. So that creates that dynamic of, uh, you know, kind of like that digital nature of option creates all kinds of different things with, as you get closer and closer to, to option expiration. And it's not only one strike, you have several strikes. You're going to have the 90 strike, the 100 strike, the 120 strike, and, and so on. Um, and you know, their players are going to, they're actually going to try to push the price to, to one, one side or the other. And this all boils down to what people be saying, you know, for long time. It's really, really hard to predict price in the short term because you're going to have these dynamics that have absolutely nothing to do with fundamental, right? Uh, Bitcoin didn't become more valuable or less valuable because of option expiration. It's exactly the same thing as it was yesterday, right? And tomorrow is going to be exactly the same thing in terms of fundamentals. So uh, just have to, to, to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, I, I would just reiterate in, in my many years at uh, Goldman, I saw plenty of models that tried to predict the price of a multitude of assets in the short term, designed by people who are highly sophisticated, highly educated, did it for a living for decades, got a PhD in statistics and econometrics, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes the model works great and people feel like geniuses. And many other times the model does not work great. So it's the type of thing that, you know, you really can't rely on it. It's just really, really hard to predict price moves in the short term. Uh, as Alpha said, fundamentals drive prices in the longer term. In the short term, you have these technical factors. You have these market structure factors, which you could spend hours and hours and hours digging into them and miss something about it. So I just always caution people, um, especially people who are doing this as a hobby, because as I said, the people who do this for a living and have a PhD in it uh, often get it wrong. So I just think you should be really, really careful if you're trying to play the price prediction game in, in terms of like days or weeks. Peter? So because the size, the current 
the current market cap of Bitcoin is relatively small in the bigger scheme of the financial world. Um, does, does this because and because there are CME futures, do, do these days are they do they or leading up to today are OPEX days? Um, do they are is is Bitcoin impacted because of the paper Bitcoin that's going on in the background, or is that not an issue? I mean, I know long term it's not. I'm just I'm just curious about this. You know, people start talking about OPEX, et cetera. It, it probably is affected, right? I mean, the, 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 there are going to be factors here that are going to be affecting the price up and down. So, and as you said, it's still uh, a fairly small market compared to, to other markets. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, for, give an example very, very, very quickly here. So um, about, I don't remember exactly when, but this is probably about like 10 years ago or something like that. Um, you know, there are a lot of investors that wanted to get exported to oil, right? So they wanted to buy oil and you really can't buy oil, physical oil. If you're an investor, right? If you want to take physical, you're actually going to have to take physical delivery of oil, store it somewhere, uh, put it in barrels, right? Pay for insurance, pay for transportation, have all these costs and then, you know, then sell it to, to somebody at some point. So there, there was an ETF that was created. It's still around. It's called USO. And what USO did is has nothing to do with oil. It's actually buying futures. So every month it will buy the next month future, right? And it will roll. So as we're getting closer to expiration, it will sell that, uh, that contract and then roll to the next month, right? So this month they'll buy it. Uh, I don't remember the expiration, but let's say the expiration is April 22nd. So they'll buy the April 22nd expiration. It's coming up. They sell out of the April 22nd and they buy the May 22nd expiration. Do that every month. So here's an interesting thing. So they started to do this. And people started to predict that that was going to happen. So all the players knew that there is this huge ETF that, you know, at the end of the month, it's actually buying contracts one month out and selling the current uh, contracts. So people started to arbitrage that uh, the curve actually became steeper than it was supposed to do exactly because of the arbitrage. And you can look it up. Look at USO performance and compared to, to oil performance. It's absolutely decimated in the long term because you're rolling futures, you don't own the, 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 the underlying. So technically something that should have high correlation with, uh, with oil, uh, but ended up having still decent correlation, but with a massive drag because you're paying this roll cost every month, right? So that just goes to show that uh, there are a lot of players looking into, into these roles and into this market. And uh, this is not for everybody. If you want to hold Bitcoin, the last thing you want to be doing is you know, investing in futures and you know, for all the reasons that we already know, the starter keys, you don't know if the Bitcoin is there, you're never taking delivery of it. Uh, but also on top of all of that, you're going to be facing market dynamics that are completely not related to what Bitcoin should be doing at the end of the day. Yeah, and a lot of times people, when they play this game, they might be relying on some sort of market dynamics that may have occurred and played out a certain way multiple times in the past and they're kind of banking on it playing out again the same way which we know that that's not necessarily the case um so yeah just uh, just things to keep in mind just because market structure market dynamics played out a certain way you know 10 times in a row in the past doesn't mean the next time it's going to play out markets are dynamic people react to them uh so you got to be really cautious when when you do this stuff Peter, do you have anything else on this topic? No, I actually wanted to uh, uh, talk a little bit about playing around with the uh, Nakamoto uh, portfolio theory, um, but it uh, looks like we can have something to say. 
just real quick, I mean, while we're on this topic of options and trading and all this shit, like <clears throat> for anyone in the audience who's thinking this might be a good idea, <laughs> let me tell you, it's really not. I mean, we already said this already, right? You got professionals and PhDs who struggle to, you know, to do this professionally or to, to flip profits consistently. And then you've got, you know, regular plebs who might get lucky once or twice and then think that they're God and uh, in the long run almost always end up getting wrecked, right? Most plebs that trade uh, literally go to zero. You know, like they, they trade until they lose everything. Um, and I was one of them, right? Like I fucked around with options on Robinhood as soon as it became available. Yeah, I've been trading on Robinhood since like 2016 when it first came out. And then as soon as options became available, I was like, fuck yeah, dude, I can, I can short now. I can 100x leverage essentially is what it was. So I was fucking around with that and I got wiped out twice my entire life savings. So, you know, I mean, please <laughs> like learn from my mistakes and don't ever get wrapped up in that shit. It's, it's not worth it. Everyone, uh, everyone always thinks that they, they're smarter too. Like it won't happen to them. When they first get into it, they're like, "Oh, I hear those stories, but but I'm smarter and yep. I'll do it." But just just don't do it. Just, just yep. don't do it. Yeah, and, it, and you might, and again, like you might get lucky, right? Once or twice, and you feel like a king. I mean, I got lucky for like a good, you know, two three months at one point, and I was like, "I'm gonna fucking quit my job," you know, like I can pull in fucking five thousand a week. Holy shit! And then and just a few breaks, you know, you're fucking wiped out. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, so sometimes thing with shit. Go ahead, Alpha. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's the same thing with shit coinery, right? I, I tell people just I I kind of gave up. They want to do it, I tell them go ahead and do it. You have to actually touch the stuff, get get burned. And then it when it hits your pocket, you learn, right? That's an expensive lesson to learn. Uh last week we were going through, you know, an analysis showing, you know, all eight thousand different altcoins since Stroke 2016 and look at their performance and they are all underperforming. There are like 40 of them that outperformed Bitcoin. And the first question I get is what are the four, what are the 40, right? I mm -hmm. forget about that. You're never going to pick the 40, but it's just people get attracted to, to thinking that they can do that. They can pick that, uh, and that they are better than the average, right? And most probably in investing, all of us here, here, including myself, I'm not above the average because the average is the guy that is worth trading, right? He's, uh, he's connected directly to the exchange. He has all these systems. They're monitoring everything. You know, thousands of computers that are going against you. You're never going to beat that game. That is a game that you're not going to, you are going to win in the long-term game. So it's simpler than people think. Just buy an asset that you know is going to perform well in the long-term. Keep it there. Keep in a size that you can hold in your pocket, that you're going to be comfortable with the, with the volatility. Then just wait, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, uh, the probability that you're going to succeed compared to whoever is trading is significantly higher. One more thing I want to say on this topic is, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up in this dream of being a trader because they think that it's an easy life, right? Like, oh, I just get to, you know, trade on on the market for like an hour when it opens and then that's it right an hour a day easy peasy get in get out a few hundred bucks two thousand bucks whatever but what you end up realizing when you actually do live this life is like you're spending way way more time looking at charts drawing stupid fucking lines trying to do like dumb research that doesn't actually amount to anything 
You know, like it's just a bunch of fucking bullshit and you spend way more time than you would just spend at like a nine to five, you know, like developing your skill set, becoming a more productive member of society and then earning more than you would have fucking made trading anyways. So like, it's like, dude, just use that time to actually like learn a skill and work hard and save and you'll be like, you know, and we, you'll, you'll be infinitely times more, you know, <laughs> more wealthy than before because you're not going to lose everything, right? You're actually going to save what you make. So I don't know, man, like it's, I've got tons of friends who, who are trying this training thing. I'm trying to steer them away, but it's hard because it's like, I know it's hard to work, right? Like that's the fucking point, right? Like you got to work hard and that's, and that's why it's hard. But like, there's no, there's no shortcuts. You try to take a shortcut and, you know, it, unless you're incredibly lucky, you're just going to end up, you know, starting over. And, you know, like how many times you got to start over before you realize like, oh, I should have just been working hard this whole time. And, and that's why trading is so difficult because, and, and sometimes having success can, is actually really, really tough for people because they think, oh, this thing I did that worked is going to keep on working, um, which isn't even true in, in any business, but at least in like a traditional business where you're providing a real value or service to your, your clients, there's always competition, things change, but they usually, usually don't change in, you know, an instant, like overnight. But with trading, you could do something that's a success. And then literally the next day, that thing you did is is gone because other people figured it out, uh, market structure changed, et cetera. So yeah, you just got to be really, really careful with, with this stuff. Um, Walker, I see your hand is up uh, before you go, before you, before you say something I want to say. Uh, latest video was fantastic. Uh, I loved the uh, character you played as gold. That accent and voice was on point, man. It's much appreciated, and we had uh, we had some fun with that one. Um, and I can I can always contribute a little bit more to the uh, the non singing videos uh, because when it's a, a singing one, uh, you y'all don't want to hear my singing voice. You know, I've got a good voice for speaking, but singing is definitely not my forte. Um, so that's uh, the singing ones are a Carla show. And I just kind of sit back and usually shit post while she's doing the singing and the editing. Um, but the acting ones, or, well, I don't know if I'm going to call it acting, but let's say it's a monetary cosplay. Um, but yeah, I was just going to say. Your, like, your um, leaps across the screen are absolutely wonderful, Walker. Oh, you know, I, I do what I can. Um, but I was just going to say, you know, got like Foss's voice ringing in my head here. You know, this is what he says all the time, you know, like, don't overcomplicate, like, especially for and what Wicked was saying too. Your best bet, like you have this cheat code, right? and that cheat code is Bitcoin, but it's a cheat code that's available to everyone. Um, you just have to be able and willing to to use it, right? And that doesn't mean that you're going to get rich overnight. Like Bitcoin's not a get rich quick scheme. It's a save the value of your time and energy, save your wealth slowly scheme, and maintain it. Uh, not, you know, it, the best thing that you can do is to try and think about how you can create value. And figure out how you can accumulate as much Bitcoin as possible to save the value of the value you are creating, things that you are putting your time and energy into. Bitcoin is the best thing that I think we probably all agree here on the stage. It's the best way you can possibly save that value of your time and energy and do it with conviction because you can actually know Bitcoin. Um, and there are very few things in this world that you can have certainty about, but Bitcoin being a finite, scarce, 
representation of your time and energy, that is something that you can know. And you don't have to trust me. You can verify it for yourself. So use Bitcoin as your cheat code while everybody else is scrambling around trying to figure out how to get rich quick, you know, displaying symptoms of, you know, this fiat system that we live in. Just figure out how you can create value and value will come back to you. And if you save that value in Bitcoin, then you are going to be okay. Yeah, I tell people if you want to trade and you, and you want to do that chart life and you want to look at all those candles and things, then just do it on the buy side. Just, you know, watch your charts, draw your little lines. And then whenever you see those big reds, then maybe you have like a little opportunity right there. You know, like, you know, getting on that buy and sell side with Bitcoin is nutso. Yeah, it reminds me of the, you know, I am hodling me might be right. For those that don't know, um, the term hodl came out of a post on Bitcoin talk. Um, and it, like, it's a hilarious post, uh, but basically like one of the things he says, like, you know, like why, you know, why am I hodling? I'll tell you why, like, I'm a bad trader. Like, you know, you good traders can spot the highs and the lows, pit path, whiffy wing, wong wang, make a million bucks. Sure. No problem, bro. The majority of us are not good traders and you can try to convince yourself that you are a good trader, but most likely you're not. Um, some people are, some people are really, really good at it. That's great. Leave it to them. You're probably not a good trader. Um, and the sooner that you can internalize that and accept it, the sooner you'll start doing something might actually bring value your way. Well, and the other thing is like these good traders, guess what? They wouldn't be very good if there weren't a bunch of bad traders you know, who they were stealing the money from. So like, so, I mean, so the other reason why you see all these fucking, you know, so-called, so-called good traders, right. And put those, I put that heavy quotation mark because you never actually know if these traders are good. But like one of the reasons why, if they are good, that they keep shilling that you should be trading is because they need fucking people to fleece, right. And they know you're going to be a fucking shit trader. So it's like, they're trying to get as many, you know, really bad traders into the market so they can keep stealing all your fucking money. Yeah, I mean, exactly. and that's, stop. Like, that's the okay. like, epitome of the shit coin grips too, right? Like, and as soon, as soon as you see some influencer posting about, oh, wow, I just discovered this new, you know, this new token that's definitely going to the fucking moon. Like, as soon as you see them posting about it, their bag is already packed. They're just waiting for you to pack up a bag so they can dump theirs. So if you see someone posting about it, see any of these fucking jabronis trying to tell you that you're going to get rich quick off whatever new frog or unicorn coin is the, you know, shit coin du jour. They're just getting ready to dump on you. They've probably already gotten a bunch of fucking free tokens from whoever wrote the contract and they are just getting ready to dump their bag all over your unwitting head. So wise up. Well said, well said. Uh, Peter and Sam, I see your guys' hands up. Peter, what's up? Um, I, I was going to switch the uh, topic, so Sam wanted to comment on this still. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to kind of add, like, it's the classic quote, look around the poker table. If you can't see the jabroni, you're it. And um, just uh, to go off what Alpha said, I mean, and Walker, like, you don't want to complicate it. Like, I know so many people who went into options instead of just buying Bitcoin during the bull market. And they were like, oh, I bought, you know, December 
50K or, or whatever, 100K March. And when you add that time component, like you could be so right about your thesis. And just because you added that complexity and added that time component, it makes it so much harder for you. And um, as you get into that, that expiration date with those options, like you start sweating. And then you could be so wrong about the timing that that option expires completely worthless. And then you have to watch Bitcoin do exactly what you thought it was going to do. And that's extremely painful. And so you should just try to not do that as much as you can, like try to minimize that um, situation as much as you can by just buying spot and keeping it simple. So keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, I, I want to say something there. You know, it, very different variations of this have been said. It, it's easier to predict trends in five to 10 years, call it, than it is in five to 10 weeks or, or even six months. And one example that came to mind, as, as Sam was saying all that, is uh, Peter Schiff um, and the housing crisis. If you guys were a follower of his, which I was, and he actually had a huge impact on me in terms of my economic thinking. I think he wrote some, some great books, uh, which, which I read multiple of them, Crash Proof, the, the Real Crash, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. I know now he's kind of become a, a whipping boy of the Bitcoin community, and he, uh, he definitely eggs that on. But if you were a follower of him, he was pointing out the flaws in the housing market in, in like 2003 or, you know, around there. So he was, quote unquote, wrong for like five years. And, and people literally laughed at him on TV. They were like, you know, this joker, Peter Schiff, he has no idea what he's talking about. And then you look at these videos in hindsight and you're like, oh my gosh, this is one of a few people who actually saw what was coming. Uh, it almost looks like he had a time machine because he predicted it so, so accurately. But, but again, he was wrong for multiple years. So predicting the timing is really, really tough. Uh, but, but you can be right about the fundamentals. And in the long term, that's far more important than predicting the timing of when something is going to play out. Uh, so I wanted to throw that out there. Alpha, I think we have you for just a little bit longer. So we'd love to hear anything that you want to chime in with. Yeah, I'll just finish up. I'll actually make a recommendation. There's a very good book. Uh, I think they have two or three different volumes. It's called Market Wizards. And it goes through the history of like all these top traders, right? So they talk about Paul Tudor Jones, Richard Dennis, Brecken Miller. So all of these guys that, you know, consistently beat in the market for a very long period of, of time. First of all, you know, there are, hand, there are not many of them. Uh, I worked at the, for, for some time for one of the largest banking families in the world, right? The, the Safra family. And Mr. Safra, once I was with him in a meeting and he told me, he's like, listen, uh, I, I don't think I'd never seen in my whole career, and this is a guy that was in his 80s when I was speaking with him, you know, so he ran a bank since he was 20 years old. So for a long period of time, it's like, I've never seen a trader that can that is consistent for more than two or three years, right? Usually I have a trader that's very good one year, good the next year, and then everything just falls apart. And uh, and it actually one thing leads to the other because success changes the person and the person becomes a, a worse trader just because of success. Uh, and and Ikev and I don't believe that anybody's lifespan is long enough for you to separate what was actually luck from what was skill. So it could be that he had a, a trader that, you know, was good for 10 years, but he was just lucky. He just throwing the dice in the road and got the number six out, you know, 20 times in a row. 
uh, that will happen. You know, when you 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 have thousands of traders coming through your bank, that that will happen from time to time. And uh, and, and he kept saying, it's like, you know, I don't believe that anybody can trade. I'll, I'll ride puts trader for a year or two, but I start being very cautious after that. And if you read the book that I mentioned, you'll see that what a lot of these guys actually did, they had one or two really good trades through, uh, through, through their career, right? So um, they, they either got a very big move and they stuck with it. Uh, if there was something that was about to collapse and they bet on it and they made a lot of money on that, but it's like two or three trades that actually really worked really well. And the rest of the time, you know, they just don't want to lose too much money. Uh, and I think we have a trade that it's 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 a significant shift in everything that we look right. And uh, just stick with it. Don't get too overcomplicated. Well, well said, Alpha. Thanks for that. And yeah, if, if I were going to summarize it really succinctly for someone, I would say the difficulty here is you have to remember that every trade is a new trade. It, it's almost like, you know, if you're a baseball player, it's like every at-bat's a new at-bat. You can't just hit a home run and then be like, oh, I'm going to be good at every at-bat going forward. It's like, no, you have to actually get in the batter's box and hit against another pitcher every time. And that, that makes it a lot harder than just saying, oh, I figured out this one trick. Like, therefore, everything I do going forward is going to be uh, successful. It just, just does not work that way. And, and the baseball keeps on changing sizes and weight. For sure. For yeah, it's almost like not not to mention not to mention the length of the bat. Like <laughs> there's just so many variables you cannot account for. Yeah, it's it's almost like it, yeah, it's harder than baseball. Obviously, the pitcher changes, the pitches they throw change, but the analogy with the market would almost be like your the the rules of baseball, you know, change and and you have to keep up with it, and you don't know when it's going to change. So yeah, the market is even more dynamic than a sport, which has relatively fixed rules that you're playing within. And and some of the other batters, they actually know when the rules change because they're helping make them. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point as well. Uh, okay, I think we I think we covered this topic pretty well, Peter. I know you wanted to shift topics, so what what's on your mind? So. Um, uh, I wanted to uh, talk about uh, the Nakamoto portfolio theory that I've been playing around with a little bit. Last night, uh, Swan Private had a webinar. Thank you very much. It was very informative and helped me. Um, I, I want to encourage everybody in the audience who has a portfolio uh, that's diversified in any way, shape, or form to use this uh, tool, um, look at the statistics, and plug in you know what you have in your portfolio because it's really pretty pretty amazing um and then i also i wanted to ask uh, alpha zeta um they have a start date that's a default of may in 2017 this is a backwards looking tool of course um and i'm just curious to know why um if there was a reason that they picked that particular um start date yeah yeah very quickly first of all uh the app is now strengthened, so if everybody goes through the app, it's probably not going to break, but I, I don't know. We, we tried this on Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't remember, and that. we had like th literally thousands of people going to the app at the same time, and of course, the, it's broke. But uh, we, you know, we, we spun up more servers, and it's, it's actually should, it, should, it should work now. So the dates, uh, what will happen is that when you go to the... Uh, uh, just one step back. You're going to go to the Nakamoto Portfolio webpage, and then this is all on the bottom. There is a, a portfolio analytics tool there. Uh, you click there, 
and then you can build whatever portfolio you want. So what will happen uh, is as you enter the ticker, so you can enter, you know, anything, Apple, the queues, uh, you can actually enter bond ETFs, you know, so uh, you put the ticker there, you put the weight, uh, the start date would be the starting date of the older data. The default would be the, the older data that you have. So you get something like, you know, the queues, S&P, which have data for a long period of time, you're going to have very long data as a, as the default. But then when you put Bitcoin in, right, there's only data on Bitcoin from the APIs that we are using, starting from, I'm not mistaken, is that 20, 2011 or something like that. So it would default to 2011. So maybe 2017 was because an asset that wasn't that portfolio is actually a little bit more recent. Uh, but it will try by default to get as much data as possible to, to make that analysis. Um, and then what you can do, you can actually change that. So when you run the analysis on the bottom, you can change, and I recommend you do, right? You, you can change the data just for the last year. You can do the last five years. You can do whatever you want. The two other things that I recommend people change. Uh, one of them is the rebalancing. Uh, on Tuesday, you know, we were going through this. And then uh, Greg Foss live page, like, oh, I just plugged this in and, you know, I ran a portfolio here and I only put 1% on it of Bitcoin. And now, you know, I'm looking at it, something is wrong because I have a 90% drawdown. And the reason why that happens is that he had Bitcoin since 2010 on his portfolio. So our 1% allocation that it's never rebalanced actually became 100% of the portfolio. So Bitcoin ate the whole portfolio. <laughs> And of course, he experienced the 90%. That's what he would have experienced the 90% uh, drop. And I, I told him, like, listen, you're going to have a 90% drop and you're going to be happy because that means that your portfolio is like significantly higher than, than it was in, in the beginning. So make changes to the rebalancing also so it becomes a little easier to see uh, kind of like how the numbers would, would have behaved in the past. And absolutely, this is all back-tested data. I mean, you're looking at the past, right? Um, and whatever happened in the past, as we, we said before, definitely not happening in the future. So the, the way that we're putting and the reason why we're putting these tools out, it's not to predict performance, it's not to predict price, nothing, nothing of that order. It's to try to explain, you know, why price moves in a certain way. It's try to explain what kind of order of magnitude we're looking at things. And more importantly, also, quite honestly, uh, this is a way to Trojan horse in the, in the traditional finance markets, right? Because I can tell you, this is the way that hedge fund managers, this is the way that asset managers, the way that a lot of in their family offices, this is how they're looking at their portfolios, right? They want to see what kind of volatility the asset had in the past. Um, I ran a curious analysis yesterday. I got uh, four of the biggest uh, Bitcoin bashers, right? So. I got JP Morgan, I got Microsoft, I got Berkshire Hathaway, and I got BlackRock. I ran an analysis that on a portfolio that is we, uh, equally weighted these four assets, right? So 25% of each of them. And then I added Bitcoin. And, you know, not surprisingly, if you want to add just a small portion of Bitcoin, two and a half percent to that portfolio, you end up with a portfolio that would have ended up, you know, through the past of a portfolio that had better risk-adjusted returns, actually less drawdown. Uh, so it's an asset that even for people that hate Bitcoin, it would have made them uh, some good in their portfolios. Uh, so I encourage everybody to play there. Everything we do, it's open source. So you can clone, you can mod modify, you can send a pull request if you want to change some. Look at it, actually, you know, if you find something that's not working, just go on the GitHub page or send us an email, however you want to, you want to do it so that we, we can fix it, we can change it. Uh, 
I, I guarantee their calculations are wrong as well. So just make sure that you double check and triple check everything. And this is the reason why we're putting everything there uh, and so open source. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to jump for a call that I, I, I'm already late. Uh, but, no. uh, you know, hit me up on DMs, anything that you, that you need. Uh, I'll be, be glad to come back and, and answer any, any questions. All right. I had a question, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold it for later. Awesome, later. guys. Thank you. Thank you, Alpha. It was great to have you. See you, Alpha. Appreciate it. I'll ask the question, even though no one's going to answer it. Throw it out I there. was basically just going to say, I was going to say, um, you know, since the model goes back to 2010, uh, you know, obviously the, 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 like the, the size of the position that you could have taken back then was very, very limited you know, relative to the type of size position you can take now. And so I wonder if it would be beneficial for the tool to account for some sort of like volume adjusted um, positioning, you know, like, you know, because if you're talking to people who are dealing with billions of dollars or whatever, even more, um, you know, like saying, oh, if you had, you had had like a two and a half percent allocation in 2010, like, yeah, well, you know, it was hard to get like a million dollars with a Bitcoin back then. So like, good luck. Right. But kind of, yeah. you know, I feel like, I feel like you need, you need a little bit more information to like be fully informed, um, you know, when you go that far back. I, I think that's a great point. Uh, some sort of absolute nominal dollar cap would make it more realistic. Um, and that, that totally is how markets work. Uh, not that anyone wants to talk about corporate bonds, but that's the world I was in for for quite a while. If you were doing some sort of model portfolio analysis of this, you always had to take into account the actual realistic sizing you think you could source of something. And if it was some small corporation that only had, you know, $500 million of bonds outstanding, you had to factor that into your model portfolio tools because you couldn't be like, oh, I'm going to buy $500 million of this because you would own the entire outstanding debt of the corporation which is uh, obviously not going to happen. So I think that's good feedback. We'll, we'll try to pass that on to, to Alpha. Because um, like he said, he, he wants to hear feedback from people. And um, I think he put the, that together as like kind of a one-man show, which is super impressive. Um, but yeah, he's, he's willing to update it as time goes on. So thanks for that, Wicked. And I, I will just say uh, something else that came to mind that Alpha said. This, he's saying this is how institutions... This is how family offices think of this stuff. I can definitely validate that. Uh, when I was at Goldman for, I would say like, you know, 2017 is when Bitcoin first came on the radar of Wall Street. But then it quickly died down because when the price drops, they just think, oh, it's dead. That's what they think every time. But in like 2020 and 2021, we did have a few people come in to our daily, we called it an investment forum that often had an external speaker. They would come in, talk about whatever their topic was. And we actually had people come in to talk about Bitcoin at, and crypto. Uh, Wall Street you know, can barely separate the two. So it was really like an all-encompassing Bitcoin and crypto conversation. But we had like three, four times someone came in to talk about Bitcoin and crypto. And I can remember one of them was basically what Alpha's trying to do here. It said, okay, looking back, if you owned... Uh, a little bit of Bitcoin, how did it affect your portfolio in terms of performance, but also in terms of risk and volatility? That's what these people want to see. Um, and, and the answer was basically, you know, Bitcoin improved to the portfolio in many different 
uh, circumstances. So, and, and it's not as if everyone saw that and was like, oh my God, we need to get Bitcoin now. Um, but I think it does at least plant a seed with these people who have this portfolio construction mindset. They start thinking, okay, maybe this is an asset that behaves differently. Uh, maybe it, it does make sense to have a two to 3% allocation. Now, what I would say kind of hurt that argument a lot was last year, a kind of a correlation go to one type moment. You hear a lot of, oh, Bitcoin's just another tech stock, et cetera, et cetera. So this is going to be an uphill battle. It's not the type of thing that we're just going to show a model to asset allocators and say, look, Bitcoin would have helped your, your portfolio and that they're just going to you know, allocate to it. But I think it is a tool that in the long run will be valuable for, for people who think this way. So with that said, um, we're at almost 1045 here. I think we've got some other news topics we can chat about here. We're going to be pivoting to Swan Private Macro Friday in probably 15 to 20 minutes. Um, actually, before we go to other news items, we do have some stuff, but it's, it's nothing that's earth shattering. Sam, would you like to chat about Binance and your recent running the numbers piece? Uh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. Um, yeah, I just threw it up in the nest, actually. So, I mean, Binance has been raising eyebrows. I mean, I, I've literally been tracking it since 2017. I even used it in 2017 and 2018. Um, there wasn't much to use back then. And um, so I have been following it for a long time. And I felt like with the recent F a CFTC lawsuit, um, there was enough there where all these red flags where I just kind of wanted to put it all in one place um, in case the user is still on that platform um, so they can understand some of the risks. Because when you, when you dig in, um, there's just so many similarities between Binance and FTX. And um, I'm not saying that it's exactly the same. Um, and there's a lot that we don't know because it's not transparent at all in terms of their operations. But when you look at things like the centralized exchange token, um, it's offshore and unregulated. They own their own market makers on the exchange and they're actively trading on the exchange. Minimal corporate govern governance. They don't have a board of directors. Um, and they're, they, one has been charged and the other is under investigation um, by all kinds of regulators, uh, the DOJ, IRS. And so when I dug in, I just, I kind of wanted to just put it all in one place because I feel like it's increasingly evident that the exchange's business practices provide enough circumstantial evidence to warrant caution among users. And then and, and they should kind of consider um, these risks if they have funds on it or if they're still using on it. Uh, because obviously with FTX, like you don't want to be in a situation where your funds get stuck there. Um, and, and you don't, you just want to try to avoid that at all costs. And so when I dug into it, I mean, it's just shocking, honestly. It's, it's shocking how they grew. Um, and it was all kinds of evading regulators, uh, kind of disregard for the law. And, um, you know, we can get into details, but that's what I, why I wrote it. And um, I don't know if you wanted to start and I can just go off and rant about it, John. But Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this piece. Um, as Sam kind of laid out there, he, Sam compared it to FTX and there are a lot of similarities. We're not saying that Binance is going to suffer the exact same fate as FTX, but... 
these are things you should be aware of if you are uh, keeping funds with Binance and effectively using them as a counterparty that you you trust in in any way. Uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about the piece was, Sam, how you went back and pulled some statements from CZ on podcasts like five or six years ago, um, talking about their uh, BNB token, uh, some of the things he said. I thought that was super interesting. Um, so maybe yeah. you want to hit on that a little bit. Yeah, like I'm usually critical of Laura Finn over at Untamed, the, the podcast. Um, I don't know, she brings a lot of shit coiners on. And, but, but some of her podcasts back in, in 2018 with CZ, she was great. Like she just laid into him. And um, even after the interview, CZ said, you know, those were unfair questions. You know, he got all angry and started tweeting about it because she just dug into him so bad during that interview. So I recommend everyone go back and listen to that. Because that was very in the beginning of Binance's start. And she was asking about, um, you know, whether BNB was an unregistered security or not. And, and whether they follow the rules of the law and why they're like offshore, where's their um, headquarters located. And he just kind of dodges questions. And he basically, the, the, the responses he gives, it's hilarious. Like he says, like, is this a, is this a, a security? You know, does this fit the Howey test? And the Howey test is just, uh, you know, how we determine if what's a security or not um, from from the 1930s. The four prongs are, are there investment of money? Is it in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits derived from the efforts of others? And his response to that is, no, it's not a company coin. You know, Binance lives on the blockchain. The Binance coin lives on the blockchain. It's a decentralized platform. And then he goes on to say, we issued it and people bought it, but now it's spread out. But we hold a large number of it but we will not be able to issue any more. So we don't have control over the coin. What we do control is we are financially incentivized to make the coin worth more. We are very encouraged to do that. We don't promise returns, but we are working very hard to increase the value of Binance coin. <laughs> so basically like just says the Howie test in this, uh, in this podcast interview. And it, it, it's hilarious. And so his, his argument is that, well, BNB token is decentralized. You know, that's kind of, what all of these shitcoiners say, like, oh, it's decentralized, we don't control it. But in the ICO, like any other ICO back then, they allocated 40% of the tokens directly to the founding team. And they're incentivized to pump that BNB token, very similar to FTX nets with the FTT token. And so when he says he doesn't, it's not decentralized, when you actually look into the blockchain, he actually says in multiple posts from like 2020, he says, well, the BNB chain isn't decentralized yet. Um, you know, we just launched it. We still have a lot of the validators. We, have, we still control it, but it's going to grow over time. It's going to grow more decentralized. Um, and then fast forward two years, they launched like the BNB chain and suddenly they're like, mission accomplished. Like we're now permissionless and decentralized and we don't control it. We don't have any unilateral power over it. And when you actually dig in to the BNB chain, and this is going to get a little technical, but well, the way a consensus mechanism works is called, they created it. It's called proof of stake authority. And in that system, a validator, to become a val validator, they have to get a strict, there's a strict vetting process from Binance itself to become a validator. And unlike a standard proof of stake system where the token holders stake their tokens, and then they can exert some kind of influence um, over the network, the Binance, you have to go there, get vetted by Binance. And so there's basically a trusted third-party validator 
And so in these proof of stake protocols, users can stake their tokens and become validators. Um, but with the Binance consensus mechanism, a centralized company, Binance, authorizes who becomes a validator. And so that's a far cry from the permissionless system. And when you dig into the validators of BNB chain, there's 21 of them. There's only 21 validators on the BNB chain. And, and there was some great research from uh, somebody over at Mazari that found those 21 validators where you directly... The 21 validators. Yeah, 21 validators. And to put that in perspective, like, you know, I don't think Ethereum is decentralized really either, but they have thousands. Uh, but, but BNB chain has even, 21 even validators. ESV has 59. <laughs> yeah. So the Masari, this guy from Masari actually tracked down the validators and they said that almost all of them were directly managed by Binance or had close relationships with the company. And that was never more evident than when uh, BNB chain suffered a hack last October. And then they unilaterally paused the blockchain. And this is when you always know whether something's decentralized or not, because decentralization always reveals itself in times of crisis. When there's you know, potential loss of over $500 million, they unilaterally pause the blockchain because all of these validators could collude together because they're all controlled or have direct relationships with Binance itself. Um, and why that matters is because they hold a lot of the BNB. Um, and so if you hold a lot of the BNB in that consensus mechanism, you could have power over the protocol. And you could even issue tokens. And so there was great uh, research from Crypto Hippo uh, like a couple months ago where he found this very weird transaction where 22 million BNB just came out of nowhere. There's no transaction history. And he didn't know where this came from. And then another uh, analyst looked into this further and he found that every 24 hours, the BNB chain essentially breaks. Like you can't even sink a note to it because it essentially breaks every 24 hours. And then they have this state recovery tool where they don't know who operates this thing, but it basically rewrites the history unilaterally every 24 hours by a centralized party. And so why that like matters is because you could basically tamper with the transactional history of the BNB blockchain and obfuscate other nefarious activities like mysteriously 22 million BNB coming out of nowhere. And that's the whole point of, you know, a quote-unquote blockchain that's decentralized. It's, it's immutable. Um, you know, a generally, a genuinely decentralized blockchain allows anyone to view the entire history of transactions with confidence, knowing that the records have not been manipulated or tampered with. You know, this, this you can't even call it a blockchain, really, this BNB thing, because it's so centralized and they're basically rewriting the history every 24 hours from some state recovery tool that nobody knows operates. Um, and then it just gets so... Once you realize that, once you realize it's not decentralized at all, like it's extremely centralized by, by a company, by Binance, who owns the token that they issue out of thin air, you start to look at, okay, well, what about BNB? Um, and you look at their strategy and their business and their entire strategy from the, from the get-go, from 2017, was how do we boost the price of BNB? Um, every single strategy they've used, um, every single product they've launched somehow tries to increase demand for BNB that they own. And then when you even look further, like if you remember the FTX debacle, CZ came under a ton of pressure around, oh, are you guys back one-to-one? -one? Like, what's on your balance sheet? Because everyone was, you know, FTX had all the FTT on their balance sheet. Like, what's on your balance sheet? And when you dug in further, you look at the addresses controlled by Binance. 
Um, you basically, they control around 60 to 80% of all BNB. They either custody it or hold it or have it on their own balance sheet. So they hold 60 to 80% of the BNB. And you look at the charts of FTT and BNB um, right before FTT collapsed, and they're almost identical. You know, they, those were the two, they were extremely outperformed. They had a ton of outperformance compared to other shit coins. Um, and you just think about what happened with FTX and FTT and you're like, okay, we know that FTT ended up being manipulated by the issuer and the exchange operator. Um, they could control the liquidity because they held a lot of it on their balance sheet and they control the liquidity on the exchange where it was traded. And we don't know what's going on with Binance. Like, but if they are pulling similar shenanigans, um, you know, the incentives are there because they hold a lot of BNB. We know it's not decentralized and their whole business revolves around the price of BNB going up or staying up. Um, and so all of those similarities together um, really paint a picture of a lot of platform risk that users should be aware of. And the last thing I'll say is around the CFTC lawsuit. And I thought one of the craziest things about that lawsuit was the revelation that CZ owns 300 separate Binance accounts and they're engaged in trading on the Binance platforms, including trading firms like Merit Peak and Sigma Chain. And those are market makers. And Binance failed to disclose in its terms of use that it engages in trading on its own platform with market makers managed by CZ himself and owned by CZ himself. And those 300 quote-unquote house accounts are exempt from the insider trading that Binance recently implemented for employees. Um, and so when you put that all together, you just say, okay, there is major conflicts of interest here. Um, we have Binance and their, their founder who has no corporate governance structure. Um, he basically is the board of directors and he controls everything. He controls the market makers trading on it. Um, they printed the BNB token out of thin air. They could control the BNB protocol and they're incentivized to pump it. And so I would just be extremely weary um, if you hold any assets on Binance um, because it's not worth the risk. And you know, there's, there's other better options now um, that you could go to um, besides this offshore opaque unregulated exchange. And so that's kind of the summary. There's a lot there, but... Um, yeah, check it out, read it, and, and kind of see for yourself. Awesome. Thanks for that, Sam. Yeah, that, that was a really good summary. There is a lot more there. I will just hit on one thing that I thought was interesting. I, I did not know that Binance acquired Coin Market Cap in 2020. Um, this is just like one of the many, many red flags here. Yep. Sam obviously listed a lot of them. And I happen to go to Coin Market Cap's uh, about page and they say, while the Binance cryptocurrency exchange and its native token BNB are listed on CoinMarketCap, CoinMarketCap and Binance are separate entities that maintain a strict policy of independence from one another. Binance has no bearing on CoinMarketCap rankings. And it's just like, okay, guess I'll trust you on that one. Uh, it yeah. gave me major vibes of like the CBC saying, yeah, we may receive 70% government funding, but they have no bearing on the news put out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, we believe you. No, I thought, I thought that was really interesting because um, you know when Bitwise was applying for the uh, Bitcoin ETF back in I think 2019, um, they had this like report around wash trading on these uh, spot markets, and um, 
they found that like 95% of the trading was deemed to be somehow manipulated. And Binance was obviously the largest exchange. And so after that, then they acquired coin market caps. It's like you control where the most popular data aggregator, where all the trading volumes are shown. Um, so it raised a ton of suspicions. And obviously there's a conflict of interest there where Binance can skew the data and manipulate the exchange volumes on the website. And I thought really interesting, This I, I came across this in the research where um, there was some article that announced the acquisition on Twitter. And in the replies of the Twitter, and I post this in the piece, it's um, Hong Fang, who is the CEO of OKCoin, OK, OK like a rival exchange operator. And in the tweets, he just goes, in the reply to the articles, he goes, be aware of, be weary of those who are trying to control the information flow. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting from a rival exchange operator, like almost like giving a little warning, like what is this acquisition? You know, they're trying to control basically the largest data aggregator and where they show the trading volumes. And so just another, you know, red flag. Um, we don't we don't know for sure, but it, it's just it's a strange. I thought it was a really strange acquisition around that time when uh, when the Bitwise ETF report came out. For sure, for sure. Uh, shout out Time Chain Stats if you want to get true unbiased data. Time Chain Stats has not been purchased by Binance yet. Uh, that is that is a good thing. Cannot confirm they may be in talks, but but they are not acquired by Binance yet. Uh, with That's Time Chain stats.com thank you peter thank you uh with that um great summary sam appreciate we are almost at 11 here so i am just going to do a couple quick announcements here and then we're going to pivot into swan private macro friday we've already got sam up here got dr jeff um so we will start talking macro and all things that come with it real quick uh, for anyone who is new, we always have new listeners. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin. We do this every day, uh, every weekday, Monday to Friday, 10 a.m., 12 p.m. Eastern time is a live Twitter spaces. You can catch the recording as a podcast afterwards. Alex Stanzik is your usual host of Cafe Bitcoin, who happens to be listening right now. Alex, of course, come on stage and chat if you want to. I'm guest hosting for Alex today. For those of you who don't know me, name is John Haar, and I'm part of the private client services team here at Swan, which we also refer to as Swan Private. If you have any interest in learning more about Swan, about Bitcoin, please shoot me a DM, shoot Alex a DM. We would love to chat with you or any friends you may have who want to get into Bitcoin but don't know where to start. A couple other quick ones. Uh, MicroStrategy World is hosting a conference May 1st to 4th in Orlando, Florida. I will be there myself. Uh, if you're interested in going to that event, we have a discount code SWAN30. There's a link to that in the nest. Uh, and then secondly, the Bitcoin conference in Miami coming up pretty soon. We are less than a month away. SWAN is sponsoring the toxic happy hour pleb party there. Uh, link in the nest for tickets if you're interested. All right. Fantastic. So with that, we are at 11 Eastern on the dot. Uh, we have a bunch of different places we can take the macro discussion as usual. Maybe I can start with uh, a few interesting news headlines here and we can just see where this goes. Uh, Sam also wrote 
uh, really good piece summarizing the current um, uh, state of the markets. Um, so we'll have plenty to dive into here, but I'll just list off a couple of things that I thought were interesting in the last week or so. One uh, came out yesterday or the day before. Treasuries, uh, cash balance, and tax receipts rose by almost $300 billion, uh, at this time in 2022 when people are paying their taxes from 2021, which as we all know, those were still the good times. Uh, financial assets were still going up in price. And this year, $108 billion. So around one third of last year's uh, tax collection at, at the same point in the year. That is not really a good dynamic for uh, the U.S. fiscal situation. We can get into that. Um, there were a couple headlines about uh, BlackRock and another guy from another asset manager talking about how um, inflation may be stickier and more persistent than some of us are maybe hoping for or expecting. And this this one guy, I think he might have been with UBS, was was saying how the Fed may have to start talking about living with higher than expected inflation target. We can debate that, talk about if that will happen. But either way, I find it interesting that these breadcrumbs are being kind of sprinkled throughout the financial media of, hey, we may not get back to 2% inflation on a sustained basis. And then another big market um, headline from the last week or so was the fact that the federal budget hit 1.1 trillion in the first six months of the fiscal year, which starts in October for the federal government. So we're kind of blowing uh, the the federal budget deficit from the prior year. We're kind of blowing that out of the water, which is not the metrics that you want to be blowing out of the water. But here we are. Um, So with that, I will say, Dr. Jeff, Sam, anything you guys want to comment on that or other topics you guys want to raise and we can take it from there. Maybe we go to Dr. Jeff first. Uh, Dr. Jeff, if you want to just, you can respond to any of that or if you just want to give us a high level of how you're thinking about the current macro picture, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. Hey, thanks, John. Hey, everybody. It's been a great conversation. Um, Man, so so many points. They, 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 we're living in very interesting times for sure. Um, one of the things you brought up is the Treasury General account, right? Tax receipts are significantly down, uh, which makes sense, right? Because 2022 was a terrible year for investors in general. Stocks were way down, bonds were way down. Um, tax receipts are are going to be down. You know, the TGA is one of the three parts of net liquidity in the U.S. that that um, I, I and many others like to look at. Uh, so what is the Fed's balance sheet doing? What is the Treasury general account doing? And what is the overnight reverse repo market doing? Um, interestingly, a couple of interesting points is one, I think there is a 95% or so correlation um, with net liquidity and the S&P 500 uh, since 2020, which is interesting. So uh, uh, one, one point, one takeaway from that is uh, we definitely do not live in a free market economy. We live in a centrally manipulated uh, economy for sure. And I would say, and I think many others agree, that that really took a, a hold uh, for real back in 2008 during the, the great financial crisis. Um, so that's one point. Um, second is what's interesting is uh, you can look back two years and look at what net liquidity has done. And it's basically uh, flat. So it went way up throughout 2021, came way down in 2022 has been creeping back up and then is now kind of trending sideways to down. 
uh, a little bit. And so if you look at the uh, risk assets, they've been following that. Interestingly, Bitcoin follows that as well, but with much more beta or much more volatility uh, to the upside and to the downside. So that's an interesting takeaway. What will liquidity do going forward, um, I think is very important in terms of risk assets. And then third, you know, we talk about U.S. net liquidity. What about worldwide liquidity and what's that doing? Uh, worldwide liquidity is still kind of on a general uptrend at bottom in October of 2022 and has been increasing. Um, why does that matter? I think because worldwide assets are um, are affected by that. So what are what are things that are traded and bought, you know, and sold by investors around the world? Things like gold, things like Bitcoin. I would also say um, uh, the mega cap big tech stocks, right? The the, the fangs that, that we know them by or, or other acronyms. Those tend to do well as worldwide liquidity is expanding, and then things that that you know that are kind of outside the purview of world investors. Uh, in particular, I look at U.S. small cap stocks that they're very sensitive to U.S. liquidity and the U.S. economy, but less sensitive to worldwide uh, liquidity. And so, this will be my final point. Why do I bring that up? One of the things I watch closely for: Are we headed into a recession, or is our economy strengthening? is what does uh, what do small caps uh, do? How are they reacting uh, from a price action standpoint relative to, say, like the NASDAQ stocks, which are which are favored by kind of um, uh, people around the world? So what's interesting is since the beginning of the year, NASDAQ, uh, NASDAQ stocks are up about uh, 19% or so, while um, small cap stocks after initial burst, they're actually flat on the year. So we're seeing a huge divergence in the performance of NASDAQ versus the S, uh, excuse me, versus small cap stocks. When the economy is not doing well, when there's trouble underneath the U.S. economic hood, small cap stocks tend to be the first to, to catch that. And they're actually, at least by the metrics I like to use, which is kind of using momentum based strategies. Um, the small cap stocks actually just went back to bearish. So they're kind of in a longer term bearish momentum now, which is pretty interesting. Uh, and, and then if you couple that with what is oil doing, oil is, has been in a strong bearish downtrend basically since June of 2022. Um, those are two primary indicators to uh, what is the economy looking like underneath the hood. And then third and finally, then I'll stop talking. Um, you know, we talked about this earnings recession. A lot of the companies in the S&P 500 are kind of hanging in there, but NASDAQ stocks in particular, even though the, the stocks themselves are performing quite well, NASDAQ earnings so far are down over 20%. And I think it's closer to 30% so far. Now we're, we're pretty early in the earnings season. We're going to learn a lot more next week. Um, but I would keep an eye on these kind of factors that economy is sort of trembling again underneath the hood. Uh, credit is tightening. There's still reasons for optimism, like we talked about with liquidity. Um, but there are many reasons to be cautious right now. So anyways, that was a, I just throwing a ton out there. Thanks for having me up and I'll uh, uh, be happy to listen to what other people have to say. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you for the high level summary, Dr. Jeff. Lots of things that we can dig into more. I also want to shout out uh, a few people who are now on stage. We've got uh, Terrence um, and Steven on the Swan side. We've also got Joe Parlasari. Welcome, guys. Good morning. Um, Sam, maybe I'll give you a chance to, is there anything you want to respond to there? I know you've been recently writing about a lot of the things that Dr. Jeff just covered. So maybe Sam, uh, can give you the opportunity to share some of your thoughts and then we can go to Steven, Terrence and Joe to see what they're thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts there, but I'd like to focus on kind of what Dr. Jeff was saying in terms of small caps versus big caps. Um, because I think like the market breadth 
in terms of the S&P 500, this move, it's been extremely top heavy. If you, if you even just look at the S&P 500 index, it's up like 7.9% year to date. But if you look at something like the Russell 2000, which includes a lot of these smaller companies, it's only up about 1.79%. So there's a big difference there. Um, and if you look at the earnings, like I think part of the reason why equities did well, if you remember going into 2023, there was a lot of worry around the earnings. Like a lot of people were like, oh, we'll just wait for earnings. Like a lot of people were thinking Q2, like things are going to fall once these earnings come in uh, under es- estimates. Um, but they actually did really well. Um, in Q1 2023, 90% of the S&P, company, S&P 500 companies that reported um, had positive earnings for share surprises to the upside compared to the estimates. Um, and so I think that maybe had a tailwind to some of these equity prices. And if you look at kind of how analysts are looking forward, like the consensus estimates moving forward, they've really had a lot of downward revisions. And so analysts are starting to look and ascribe to a greater probability to a drop in co- corporate earnings. Maybe that's because of the inflation. Maybe that's because increased costs or, or they're seeing decreased demand. Um, and James Lavish sh- sh- shared a great chart the other day looking at corporate profits after tax and how that dropped in negative t- territory year over year um, just recently. And so I am kind of thinking about this coming earnings season. And I'm kind of going to watch it closely um, to see if it comes under estimates um, because it could be maybe a headwind to some of these, this equity rally. Um, and, and a lot of analysts are kind of watching it. So definitely looking at the breadth um, of this move and, and kind of keeping an eye on earnings from here. And I think it's something to be aware of. Yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of things to uh, be <laughs> uh, potentially concerned about in the coming six months or so. Uh, would love to hear thoughts from Steven, Terrence, Joe. Uh, do you guys want to elaborate on anything that's been said so far? Do you want to potentially take the other side or, or being too bearish here? Um, Steven, would, would love to hear from you. What's on your mind? Yeah, I think I don't, this isn't so much as like a, statement about the market, but I think it's just worth considering that like there's been a lot of recession chatter for about a year and a half. And like so far, it just seems like it's always around the corner, you know, and I think it just I think it's important to take it with a grain of salt because so far things have, you know, hung on in there. Is that me saying that that can sustain forever, you know, indefinitely at six percent federal funds rate like no i'm not saying that but i do think it is worth spending a little more time examining like why that hasn't materialized yeah i um sorry but i just think it takes time um like there's a there's a tried five guy named michael cantro and i think he has a great framework he calls it the hope framework and he talks about how this stuff kind of moves from like housing to new orders to corporate profitability to finally employment. And I know Joe talked about this yesterday or two days ago too. Like we just haven't seen any kind of rise in unemployment. Um, the, the labor markets remain tight, strong, whatever you want to call it. And like somebody else said too, I mean, the Fed never says recession ever. Like in the, in the last media minutes, they were kind of like, oh, we're kind of expecting a mild recession. And they've said they want to get unemployment up. They're like, we're okay with 4.5% unemployment, 4.6% unemployment. That's kind of what they actually said. 
And what that means in numbers is about 1.5 million to 2 million people losing their jobs. But if you look at the unemployment like chart, I mean, it's very reflexive, meaning like when it goes up, it, it shoots up. And so the idea that we're going to get like this mild recession where it just goes up to 4.5%, like it's hard for me to see that when you look at that chart. Um, but I think until we see any kind of movement in the unemployment, um, we could, this recession could be kicked back, 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 or, or maybe, maybe it doesn't make happen. Like, I, you know, maybe there is some kind of soft landing, but, but I think it just takes a long time for this kind of trickle through. And um, he described it as like the seasons, like it doesn't just immediately become winter. Like it's slowly, you know, markets reacts to the new policy environment, um, you know, capital flows and changes to kind of uh, get more defensive. And this just takes time, this like churn. And um, I think that what we're seeing is this kind of the market start to react to this new policy environment. And maybe we'll start to see unemployment start to actually tick up. Um, but that's something that, that you have to keep an eye on. It's just this labor market that the Fed is trying so hard to break. And they basically make people lose their jobs, but it just hasn't happened yet. So I don't know if Joe has anything to add there, but I think it's important. Also, I mean, I mean, one thing I would just throw out there is like, and I, and I, I don't, I don't really like disagree with what you're saying. And, um, but I think like you mentioned, like, a, oh, it starts in housing and it goes, you know, X and Y. Um, I, I think the thing I would say there is like housing, you know, my house was up two and a half percent last month. Um, most non like insanely bubble town housing markets are like not super materially off the all time high stocks have regained like a huge part of the drawdown. Like it just, I don't know. It's like all these areas just don't actually seem that beaten up. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is like the stock market is in many ways, decoupled from the real economy in a lot of ways, actually, um, we can get into that and why that is, but, um, there's structural reasons for that. And, and we talk about this, we talk about this in the past and here and, um, in, in terms of passive flows. And if you look at the stock market, uh, the reference to Michael Cantrell, he'll tell you very clearly that the stock market really doesn't care very much until there is a significant rise in unemployment. Um, that is what really pops the pin in both housing and the stock market. So uh, there's plenty of reasons to think, at least because of some of the hangover from the COVID stimulus and other aspects of the labor markets that have changed post-pandemic, why it may be difficult for uh, uh, employers to let go of uh, employees uh, really precipitously. And they'll probably hang on to them longer than they should, just from a pure you know, balance sheet perspective. Uh, and that might be what we're seeing here. So, you know, in terms of like timing this whole thing, like if until you get unemployment to really rise rapidly, you're not going to see these, you know, huge declines in, I think, at least in the uh, labor market or um, the real estate market. I mean, the number one reason why people sell real estate polled consistently for the last 40 years has been death. And number two has been they lose their job. So, you know, people aren't going to engage in these fire sales until they literally cannot make it work anymore. And if you look at things like the Chicago Fed Financial Conditions Index, access to credit generally still remains relatively loose by historical standards. Um, e even right now with the rate of inflation and where, where uh, lending is, particularly at the long end, right, it is 
positive from a cyclical standpoint. You're, it's it's an easy, considerably easier uh, than it was even 10 years ago if you adjust for inflation. Um, so so that's like critical to look at from, you know, how, from a timing perspective, where you're uh, assessing, like, when are things going to really roll over and implode? And, you know, for most of last year, I was sort of pounding the drum that, look, guys, like anybody saying there's an imminent recession or things are blowing up, um, you're, you must be looking at your, your stock market portfolio because that's not in the real economy. The data wasn't there. In fact, you know, we printed near 3% GDP uh, in Q3 and Q4 uh, last year. We had mild, mild declines on a real basis in Q1 and Q2 with very high nominal prints, a labor market that was absolutely on fire. Um, and, and even right, luckily, even as, as of latest today, right, we had both uh, the flash PMI services and manufacturing, they beat expectations. So, you know, I totally endorse what, uh, what Sam was saying, like this stuff takes time. It, it, you know, monetary policy takes years, years. There's a paper I actually was going to post uh, the other day. Milton Friedman talks about the Fed funds. Uh, I, I found him, he, he kind of changes his position a couple of different times, but monetary policy changes from Fed funds. Um, he, he, in most of his later works was saying, you know, it, it takes approximately 18 months for them to really affect the economy. Um, there was a paper he wrote in the 60s where he talked about two years before the real tangible effects of those hikes roll through the economy. Two years, okay? So for the people that go out there and trade and dump stocks or dump equities, because of the fact the Fed hikes 75 basis points in June and July of 2022, uh, you're really effectively trading on 2024 news. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but uh, it, it is what it is. Psychology drives the stock market until you have people really start to get afraid. Um, you could expect asset classes to hang in there. Yeah, but a lot of good points being made here. I have two comments I want to make. Uh, I think we have Tone up here, or did, did we? Oh, yeah, we have Tone. So uh, I want to hear from you as well, Tone. T two thoughts that just come to mind for me. I will make a, a comparison to 2007, 2008, 2009. I'm not saying we're headed for the same thing. There's plenty of things that are different. But for those who were following markets back then, there were people talking about problems brewing in 2007. Uh, I mentioned Peter Schiff earlier in the show. He was mentioning problems brewing in, in like 2003. Um, but even mainstream outlets were talking about problems brewing in like mid to late 2007. And it took another year or more for those problems to actually play through. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Um, and then the other Bur thing... Put on, sorry, John. Go ahead, Bur go ahead. Burry put on some of his her initial shorts in early 06. Okay, early 06. Yeah, and so this this actually links back to what we were talking about with trading and timing the market earlier in the show. Very difficult to do. You can even be correct about your assessment on the fundamentals, but if you're early, you're effectively wrong in your positioning. Uh, so very important to keep that in mind. And then the other comment that, that comes to mind for me, um, obviously there's multiple things people look at when determining if we're in a recession. Real GDP is uh, either at the top of that list or close to the top of that list. So I just have to throw out the fact that real GDP is, if everyone, you know, anyone's not aware, it's nominal GDP and then it's adjusted for some sort of price uh, inflation metric. So that is going to be highly sensitive to the adjuster. So you just have to keep in mind that we're using the official government numbers for quote unquote aggregate prices, I, I say that quote unquote because 
there is really no such thing as an objective way to calculate all prices in the economy, but you know, we do it anyway. And that's what nominal GDP is adjusted by. And that's how we end up with real GDP. And if it's positive, we generally say, oh, we're not in a recession. And when it's negative, we say, okay, now we're in a recession. I just have to throw out there how sensitive real GDP is to those inflation aggregate price numbers. So if you start calculating different price numbers, you can end up with a very different real GDP metric. Uh, so those are just two comments that come to mind. Tone, anything you want to chime in with here? Sure. I actually put on my shorts on real estate around the same time as Michael Berry in early 2006. However, unlike him, I ran out of money and I kind of blew up my portfolio shorting real estate and home builders and the works. Uh, by the end of 2006 and in very early 2007, I had to get a Wall Street job. Ironically, that job was at Bear Stearns, which within 12 months later, completely imploded due to the shorts that I would have profited on. So that, there's some irony for you. Uh, but uh, uh, okay, so I'm still bullish on the S&P. Uh, I wish I was here five minutes earlier to hear what Dr. Jeff had to say, but uh, I, I, but I heard the rest of it. So I am still bullish on the market, but here, and here is a big but, and we, we talked about this on, uh, on a different spaces. I have the capital to stay bullish because I turned bullish right at the lows around October. And that's when I turned full bullish on the stock market. So my view is as long as we stay above you know, the secondary lows that we hit in March, um, I'm still in the green with my view. It's not even about the position, right? It's about the view. So I still have capital. So we can still fall like another 5, 10% from here. And, uh, and then I can change my mind that I'm going to say, okay, now it's time to maybe be a bear and now shit's going to hit the fan. But I'm still pretty bullish on the U.S. market. And just a quick comment on the Dow versus the S&P versus the Russell versus the NASDAQ 100. Uh, in order, uh, the Dow is only down like 8% from the peak. Uh, then you have the S&P uh, and uh, down like 13%. Uh, then you have the NASDAQ, which is down 22%. Then you have the Russell, which is a small cap down 26%. Now, to me, what that means is there is international capital flowing into the U.S. It's the Americans that care about lotteries. It's the Americans that, you know, care about uh, uh, these gambles. Uh, it's the local people in the U.S. that gamble on the tax sector, that gamble on the small caps. When international capital flows into the U.S., uh, European money, Japanese money, uh, it goes for the top assets. It doesn't look for the startup. It goes right into the biggest companies there are. And this indicates that there is international flow coming into the U.S. And the question is, is it ending or is it getting started? And I think it's getting started. Uh, so that's kind of my view on that. Now, will the smaller caps catch up uh, and all of this stuff will hit all-time highs in the near future? Uh, in that case, yeah, you make the bet on the small cap. Uh, but the small cap may not catch up. It could be just the top companies getting fatter and bigger. Uh, so I remain bullish on the market. Uh, I think international money coming into the United States private companies uh, is one of the biggest factors that's going to drive the U.S. market uh, to new all-time highs uh, over the next several years. I see Joe has his hand up. 
Uh, so go for it, Joe. Yeah, before you go, Joe, I wanted to ask you, Tone, and you may have just uh, hit on it in that final comment. When you say you're bullish on the market from here, is that more of a short-term view I wanted to hear, or do you think this is longer-term, meaning we have seen the lows in the S&P and, and you're, you're not worried enough that there's going to be something to cause us to uh, hit lower lows than we saw in the fall of 2022? Yeah, I am bullish uh, across all time frames, uh, short term, intermediate term, and long term on the on the U.S. stocks. Now, I am bearish on America, but I am bullish on the U.S. stocks. There is a difference here, and I know it's a weird position and a weird statement, and I don't think we've seen anything like this. Well, like again, markets don't exactly repeat; like the same crashes don't repeat, and the reason is is because I think that the federal debt is going to be the big problem. And there is so much money sitting in federal debt that once that money is starts to exit federal debt or that money doesn't want to enter federal debt. I mean, look at China, right? China has not bought a single U.S. government bond in years. They're, and in fact, they're selling U.S. government bonds. Now, what does China do with the excess dollars? Now, lately, they've been buying gold. Uh, they, they don't know what to do with that money. If you're not buying U.S. federal debt, uh, what's the next best option? Eventually, they're going to look for other places to put the U.S. dollars that they're getting their hands on. And buying up U.S. equities may not be a bad idea because a lot of these companies like Apple, they're more international than American, uh, especially these online companies like the tech sector, right? They're not dependent on America. Like, for example, um, if... Uh, Elon wants to take Twitter public again. Uh, he may not do it on American stock market, right? He may do it on, you know, another stock market. Or maybe the Bitcoin blockchain will have a side chain that would allow him to go public, you know, something like that. But, like, we don't know what the technology will lead to in the future. But these companies, they don't have to depend on the United States. They are more international. And if people think that the U.S. government may default, on the payment or they may confiscate some of those, you know, like, like also the terms of the deal, uh, it's safer to be inside a corporation, inside a company that actually makes money. Uh, so I can see, you know, the U.S. Uh, economy and the, not economy, but I can see the U.S. politics and like the United States going down the toilet, but the U.S. stock market continuing to rise because these companies are still needed globally. Yeah, if I could follow that up, that that's so on point and it, it is spot on something I think that is missed by many of the stock market purveyors out there. Okay, what Tone just said is from a, from a international perspective is critical. There are plenty of foreigners that will buy U.S. equities, not only because they are getting access to great companies, multinational companies with incredible balance sheets with virtually unlimited abilities, to, uh, to, to borrow money when they need to in terms of turmoil. Think like Apple Computer and Microsoft. These things are bulletproof from a balance sheet perspective. They have all the money they could absolutely need. But there's other a, a key aspect. When you buy those equities, which are valued in U.S. dollars, and you are you know looking down the barrel of a potential recession or even a global slowdown, not necessarily a recession, you are protecting yourself from a currency perspective of the dollar strengthening and the uh, and, and your relative currencies falling in value. So you get the added benefit of not only owning the equity, 
but you get the, the protection uh, from a currency perspective, which is really critical. This is why you Brett Johnson of Santiago Capital talks about this, how he thinks if there is trouble with sovereigns and sovereign debts, you should see capital, you should expect capital to flow into multinational, particularly the, the core group of the S&P 500, because those things are bulletproof. And that's where you're going to have to store some of that money. Um, but what I, what I want to add, one more thing about this before I see, I see uh, Tony has a stand up, is that uh, it's, it's critical to think of these things as like vehicles for, for where you're going to put your assets in times of volatility. And also from a balance sheet perspective, what qualifies under Basel as high quality liquid assets. Now, what many people don't know about the Basel requirements is that many ETFs, broad-based ETFs like SPY or VU, the S&P 500, they actually qualify under Basel as high quality liquid assets. So what that means effectively is that major institutions, banks, big entities, they can actually, in addition to buying treasuries, which is what they've done historically for the past several decades, they can buy ETFs with the S&P 500 and hold them on their balance sheet, get them to comply from a regulatory standpoint. And that is massive. That can, that can justify massive flows of capital into certain markets. Uh, conversely, like a lot of assets we care about, things like Bitcoin, you know, they don't qualify as HQI. So, so even if they wanted to, they couldn't put it on their balance sheet. Yeah, before, before Tony. Yeah, Tony, I just want to say real quick, this, this yeah, kind of highlights what Dr. Jeff opened with earlier, which is, you have to remember, we are not uh, participating in free and open markets here. There are countless regulations that encourage, uh, encourage is probably a euphemism, perhaps force is a better word for many large institutions to own certain types of assets uh, in, instead of others. So Joe brought up uh, a, a pretty great real world example of that happening. Uh, Tone, go ahead and then we'll go to Stephen. Yeah, I should add to what Joe said. So Joe mentioned uh, protection against, uh, you know, uh, devaluation, uh, like the dollar strengthening. So, uh, and people have to understand that when we talk about inflation, we could be a little U.S. centric here, right? So for us, what is inflation? For us, inflation is shit's going up in price. We got to pay more for our eggs. That's inflation for us. When you're in a foreign country, uh, your currency could stay uh, pegged to the dollar and things could go up in price, or your currency can fluctuate against the dollar, and things can still go up in price. But in addition to that, your currency can grossly devalue against the dollar, something that us in America don't really deal with that often. But if you're in a foreign country, your currency could just, you know, like, like they ran your currency into the ground and no one trusts you, and suddenly the prices are going up in your country because your currency devalued against the dollar. Uh, not that the price of eggs went up, but it's just devalued against the dollar. And now you're kind of screwed internationally. So by, by buying U.S. companies, you are protected against both of those types of inflation. You are protected against your own currency crashing against the dollar. But also by buying the U U.S. stocks, you are protected internally within the U.S. against inflation. Because if shit's going up in price like your iPhone, well, guess what? Apple is making more money because they're selling a more expensive iPhone. So their stock will also go up in price. Plus, we are entering an age of automation where companies like McDonald's are getting rid of their most, their biggest expense, human employees, and replacing them with robots, which makes a company like McDonald's significantly more profitable. So again, uh, inflation doesn't really affect it. They can raise the price of these burgers, and suddenly the company makes more money, and they're firing employees and replacing them with tellers, uh, automated tellers. 
Yeah. I think like the most important takeaway here, or at least what, what, what I take away from it, and this is kind of something I've thought for a while, is that you can't just look at like, you know, many people have said this in this room before, but like the U.S., the economy and the stock market are not remotely near the same thing. And so when, you know, we're all sitting around focusing like extremely granular intelligent uh, attention on the fluctuations of the economy, a recession and these various flows, um, it's important to take a step back and realize that like the stock market doesn't just track that. And that there are a ton of these factors, particularly in the U.S. economy, particularly because of currency dynamics, where even if you get this recession, um, well, that cascades globally and it's, it, it, it trips these switches that cause foreigners to pile capital into the U.S. And so it's hard to. Does that mean the stocks can't go down? Does that mean they'll definitely go up? You know, it's it's hard to say explicitly, but there's enough reason to be hesitant and to be cautious that even if some of these negative outcomes uh, come to pass, that that inherently means, oh, yeah, the S&P is down 25 percent. Uh, you could just as easily see it where you see huge capital inflows. You see, you know, a flight to these companies like Joe and Tone were saying. And you realize that the function that the U.S. stock market serves is not to accurately mirror the real economy and allocate capital based on the fundamental prospects of these businesses, but it has been effectively monetized. And, and it is serving a primarily or at least a partially monetary purpose where it is a liquidity sink and it is a store of value. And, you know, this is all dialogue with Bitcoin how much of it is monetary premium? How much of the stock market of the S&P is that we've turned the S&P into money as opposed to equity? If I could maybe ask a question for uh, anyone who wants to chime in, because we are talking about, you know, how will these broad stock market indices. And yes, we're talking U.S. centric here. We're talking about some of the largest companies in the U.S. And we're kind of making the case for why they could potentially do pretty well uh, in the future. So I, I've, I've pointed this out before, but it's a fascinating stat that I think everyone should be aware of it. If you look at QQQ, which represents uh, some of the largest companies in the NASDAQ, 15 year annualized total return is just under 15% per year uh, for QQQ. SPY is just under 10%. So uh, Tone, Joe, Steven, Dr. Jeff, anyone who wants to chime in, what, you know, I'm not, we're not going to hold your feet to the fire on a firm prediction here, but do you guys think there's a potential we see a similar type of annualized return. And keep in mind, these are nominal figures. Um, but do you think there is a potential we see similar type of returns over the next 10 to 15 years? Or do you think we are more in a regime change, so to speak, where uh, we don't see those kind of returns on, on large cap U.S. stocks? 
I mean, I'll just I'll just uh, jump in here. It's been a great conversation so far, by the way. I I, I tend to think that's going to flip flop. If anything, I, I think that you know, last decade was the decade of uh, mega cap tech stocks. So again, the fangs or magmas or whatever you want to call them. I mean, that's where all th- those are the companies that just absolutely crush it when yields are low, right? When when the when when we have a zero interest rate policy, basically, and and anybody can. Um, uh, acquire cheap debt and these mega caps can acquire it f- uh, as cheaply as possible and then they can churn out just massive revenues for that. What happens though is that they become the darlings, right? I think of it sort of like the nifty 50 back in the 60s um, and basically the stocks that couldn't lose, right? You couldn't lose over the last decade if you just bought Apple and Netflix and Amazon and Microsoft. Um, but at some point they do lose. At some point valuations do matter even if they don't for a very long time. Um, and so I'm of the opinion that similar to the 60s when the Nifty 50 had the run-up, similar to the 90s when the dot-com uh, era was going on, uh, and then similar to the 2010 era, uh, I think these kind of mega caps have seen their best days personally, uh, and it's gonna and there is a regime change. So I don't expect them to have that kind of massive outperformance going forward. If you look at the 1970s and you look at the aughts, the the 2000s, basically, and then I think the t- uh, 2020s will be similar. I think they underperform kind of the value stocks. And I think we get back to a decade of where valuation matters more. And I think that things like hard assets and sound money uh, tend to outperform substantially over the previous high-flying uh, growth stocks. But I'd love to hear uh, opposing opinions. Yeah, I have a complete opposite opposing opinion to that. Uh, so... My view over the next decade is literally the opposite of what Jeff said, which is kind of uh, ironic, I guess. So I, I see things getting ridiculously stupid. So I'm very bearish on the European Union. Uh, I don't know how that thing is going to unwind, but it's going to be bad. And the dollar is measured mostly against the euro and other Western countries. So I can see the dollar getting ridiculously strong, while at the same time, the stock market going into that exponential rise, uh, like the thing that Jeff said he's not expecting, I'm expecting. So sometime before 2028, 2030 maybe, uh, I'm not gonna go as far as a full decade, but even before that, uh, I think that we are gonna get into this ridiculous exponential rise in the stock market. Maybe not like the Great Depression, but like the Great Depression, like the NASDAQ boom. And people will be completely confused why this is happening. And the reason why this is happening is because there will be a collapse uh, in the confidence in government bonds, which is 10 times bigger than, you know, what's in the stock market. So I see all capital flowing into the stock market because in order for us to have a 1929 style uh, crash in the stock market or the 2000 crash in the tech bubble or the 2008 crash in the financial sector, you need the unreasonable exponential rise that no one can understand how it can go up so far so fast. And I don't believe we had that yet. And if the dollar is going into some kind of, uh, uh, after the dollar strengthens, people will still know that it's strengthening because everything else is just crashing. It's not that the U.S. economy is that strong. And then eventually the strong dollar versus the euro and stuff will also collapse the, the U.S. economy. Like eventually we will get uh, a repeat of, you know, an 80, 90% correction in the stocks, like uh, like the three I just mentioned. But before that happens, we're going to get a few double links from here. So I see this ridiculous rise for crazy reasons. 
Yeah, let me let me just my view is I, I can see both scenarios play playing out. And to be honest, I I sort of tend to to favor more of Tone's view. Um, but I, I definitely don't dismiss Dr. Jeffs. What I would tell you just from like the return standpoint is uh that you know the SP five hundred and how it's constructed from a market cap perspective is built to adapt and vary over the following decade. So for example, if you get a, a big run in value stocks and and energy stocks, for example, which make up a very small amount of the S&P 500, the, the S&P 500 will reconstitute itself on an annualized basis to better reflect what is moving and what is gaining market cap. And I think what's critical to remember is that money has to go somewhere, right? Uh, very seldomly over the course of human history, particularly in, in, the, in the, the fiat system, does money supply decrease. So you should expect returns. Now, whether we get the same type of uh, Goldilocks type returns you've gotten for the last, you know, 10 years. Uh, that remains to be seen. It can get kind of crazy, like Tone says, but it doesn't have to. I would tell you that if it doesn't, if you don't see those types of returns, that generally means something very bad is happening in society, which I don't really believe in. Uh, I tend to believe that, uh, you know, after these different bits and spouts where they're trying to crush CPI, they'll be back to the same old business as usual with respect to you know, the quote unquote money printing over and providing stimulus and providing liquidity. Uh, I don't really believe that that has fundamentally changed and you've seen a paradigm shift there. I mean, if you look at the last six months of data here, you know, we're down to CPI on an annualized basis at like 3%. Um, so the Fed, you know, if they trigger a recession and you get, you know, you crush economic growth and you bring inflation down, I don't really fully understand the argument why there wouldn't be more of what we've seen before. I don't think this time is different. I think that the world has debt problems, it's got demographic problems. And the only way, you know, as Jeff Booth points out, to pull forward more demographics uh, and, and pull forward our, our poor demographics and pull forward more growth is you're going to have to stimulate and you're going to have to quote unquote print to stimulate and do so. So that's just my view. Well, one last comment real quick. And uh, for anyone that is bullish on Bitcoin, but bearish on the stock market, uh, you have to realize that Within a few years, every single company in the S&P 500 in the stock market is going to be holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So don't forget that. Like these private companies, they're not going to trust U.S. government bonds either. And they're going to have to put in, if your company is profitable, that money's got to go somewhere. So that's another reason to be bullish on the stock market because microstrategy is only the beginning. Wait till there's a hundred of those. No, that's spot on. There's far too many. I mean, so many Bitcoiners are like expecting Bitcoin to rapidly surge while the stock market collapses. I just think that's, I think that's crazy to be honest. Terrence, we'd love to hear what you're thinking um, here. Yeah, sure. So I, I agree with all that. Um, I, do you think it takes time? So it might be longer than a few years for companies to have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. One thing that people might not realize is FASB, the Financial Accounting uh, Standards Board, they recently um, proposed changing, or, or it was about a year ago that they talked about changing from um, to a fair value accounting for Bitcoin so that instead of a one-way downward ratchet where if Bitcoin, you bought Bitcoin as a company at 60,000, it drops to 20, you have to market at 20 or 18 or whatever the lowest. Um, and then even if it goes back up to let's say 30, you still market at 18 as an impaired kind of intangible asset because the rules um, were, were not accommodative enough to a new technology like like Bitcoin. So now that they're changing it to fair value accounting, that should help a lot of companies 
uh, put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, the ones that follow GAAP or generally accepted accounting principles uh, for their um, accounting. Did you say that they are changing it, Terrence? These are a proposal. Yeah. They first talked about it a year ago or so. And they've recently kind of solidified that some more. So I think they're progressing on that. I'll find it and post it in the nest. Uh, what, one thing I did post in the nest that I didn't mention before was uh, Sam Callahan had talked about the hope cycle by this guy, um, Cantros. So, um, Michael Cantros. So I just posted that in the nest for people to read about how housing and orders and profits um, cause kind of unemployment as housing prices fall and so forth. Which if you go by that metric and you believe that that is a good framework to use, uh, we're about, you know, 18 to 24 months away from a real recession because of where, where housing is at currently. Yeah, I, I like this discussion and I will say I'm more so in Dr. Jeff's camp, but not, you know, firmly, these are very tough uh, things to predict. Um, I, I don't think that stocks necessarily have to stay flat for, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, but if you talk about it in terms of in real terms, you know, could I see, the, I'm going to throw out numbers that are way too specific, but I'll just do it for the sake of conversation. At SPY returns something like seven to eight percent per year on average for the next ten to fifteen years, but uh, quote unquote inflation, based on some measures, averages something like five percent per year for the next ten to fifteen years. I could see something like that playing out. That would be pretty muted uh, returns, I think. So that to me would constitute a uh, regime change. But um, I think good good points made all around here. Um, there, there's definitely points to be made in the camp of being bullish stocks for the long term or uh, a little bit more uh, bearish in the regime change camp. So I feel like we covered that topic uh, pretty well here. Does anyone have any anything else they want to hit on uh, in the in the macro space? Any topics that you guys particularly want to touch on here? Yeah, I'd love to get people's thoughts. Um... You know, about a month ago, we were talking about um, the BTFP and the discount window and the provisional liquidity, and everybody kept posting the rapid increase in the, the balance sheet. And uh, over the last several weeks, we've now drawn down, uh, I think as of today, when we get the ODL numbers, we'll be about 40% of the additional liquidity provided in the emergency basis from the discount window and, uh, and also the BTFP. So uh, by next week, we'll be over half of it gone. So I'd like to hear people's thoughts as to whether we make a lower low on the balance sheet and take out all, all the liquidity. Um, keep in mind the discount window, unlike the BTFP is a 90 day deadline. So all of the liquidity, which was primar primarily provided by the discount window, that will be gone and exiting the balance sheet uh, 90 days after March, which will put us in June. So the question is like by June, if the QT continues and you also see the, the runoff of the discount window, that's probably the easiest projection for when we make a new low on the balance sheet. But I love to hear people's thoughts if they say that's absolutely not happening or that's a done deal, uh, that we're going higher on the balance sheet. I know Lynn Alden and I were talking about that, and she seems to think that the low is in for the balance sheet uh, for this 
um, uh, tightening cycle, but I'm interested in other thoughts. Yeah, I'll, I'll go and then Tone would love to hear your thoughts. Just quickly from me, um, I think you know, it's important to point out that if, to the extent anyone was saying when BTFP happened, you know, this is it. Uh, now we're back into a one-way Fed balance sheet going off, you know, doors blown off, QE. Uh, you know, that was not a, an accurate view. Um, and we, we've talked about this on, on the show. Um, we generally uh, think that it, it is more so, uh, the, the analogy I like to use is the Fed, the Treasury, the government in general, is more so slapping small pieces of duct tape on things that break in the system rather than saying, okay, this is a March 2020 environment where uh, increase our balance sheet by $3 trillion and we're going to keep increasing it for you know multiple years. That is unlikely to happen. I, I think the UK, what happened with them last year where they had to go into a form of QE, but it was much more targeted. And then they actually did reverse it after they... Uh, quote unquote, solved the issue in their financial system. So I think BTFP is a very similar dynamic that's playing out. And I tend to think that this is going to be emblematic of what plays out from here. I think the Fed will continue to try to uh, engage in QT to try to shrink their balance sheet until the next thing breaks. And I think if there's something that that, uh, uh, we learned from the BTFP program, there were very few people talking about thing that breaks to be the U.S. banking system at a top 20 U.S. bank going under. So it is very hard to predict the next thing that breaks. But I think as as a general uh, view, I would say the Fed will engage in QT until there is a problem in the financial system. But when they, quote unquote, go to fix it, it will not be trillions and trillions of dollars in QE in the near term, at least. I think it will be more so uh, you know, a few hundred billion here, a few hundred billion there. Um, and that's the type of thing we're going to see uh, until something very different happens in terms of some sort of crisis that they are responding to. Um, so that, that's my general view, but I'm, I'm sure Tone and others have something to say. I'll try to make it super quick. Yeah, so I actually, I don't know if you guys remember, but I couldn't believe why people were making such a big deal over that little tiny rise. Uh, in the Fed balance sheet when that announcement was made because with the banking problems. Uh, so to me, this was basically irrelevant in general. And I, I do think that the low is not in. I think it'll go lower. Like I think their uh, their balance sheet will actually decline uh, unless uh, they continue to raise rates. And I don't understand that. I'm not sure why they're going to raise rates again, 25 basis points. Like I really thought they were going to think- The hasn't risen. Let's see. I, 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 I know, but they are screwing up the banking sector. I thought they would at least, you know, like wait a quarter. Like inflation is coming down a bit or at least stabilizing year on year. Um, I thought they would at least pause and give the banking sector, you know, an extra few months to hedge some of these positions. But it looks like business as usual for 25 basis points. So if they continue to just, you know, drive this bus without looking in, in, in at any mirrors, uh, then, yeah, they're going to, you know, cause some more havocs and some more small banks. And then suddenly that uh, window is going to be used again and their balance sheet is going to spike up. So I think it depends a lot on what they do with the rate. Uh, completely but, correlated. Tell, let me just follow up on this real quick. So the question, and John, also your your thoughts on this. So I want to make sure I understand your position. So 
they have been seeing this since last fall. Um, there's a, a tweet that I, I sent to Terrence a bunch of times, but um, where I think it's Williams or the Fed says, like, we're confident that we can maintain financial stability while continuing a tightening cycle. And we have surgical approaches to do that. Things like the BTFB, if they need to and, and, you know, have a, 10 more acronyms and 10 more facilities, uh, one for commercial real estate, one for other little pockets. They think that they can sort of do this in a surgical approach, like a scalpel, and continue the broad policy of, of, of tightening. So my question is, why can't they? Why won't that be sufficient to maintain financial stability by using these one-off programs, things like the discount window, things like the BTFP, while at the same time getting rates up much higher, continuing to shrink the balance sheet. I mean, there, William said he wants to get the balance sheet down to $4 trillion, um, and uh, over the next two years. So yeah, I'm just curious why people think that can't work. I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot I agree with there. I think the word, whatever word you want to use, surgical, targeted, directed, I, I think that is what I think the Fed responses are going to be. Um, but I mean, the, you know, the balance sheet getting down to 4 trillion, I mean, that just reminds me of like Bernanke saying he's going to get it under 1 trillion after the initial rounds of QE. I, I mean... It's to me, it's just, I'll believe it when I see it. They haven't been able to shrink the balance sheet in a meaningful way for an extended period of time for almost 15 years now. So, yeah, uh, but they have new facilities, right? They've got reverse repo now. They've got other, other facilities and they'll make more. I mean, I'm just, I'm curious why people frequent, I mean, they consistently underestimate these guys to make new, uh, <laughs> whatever scams to say, they achieve their ends. So, so is the point there that they effectively, it, that, I'm, I guess I'm not sure what the point there is. Like they come up with new tools to effectively patch up the financial system, but it just doesn't, while they can tighten the balance sheet at the same time, is that the point you're making? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no, my, 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 it's really more of a question. I, I seem, there seems to be a universal consensus that they will fail in their goal to shrink the balance sheet and keep rates higher for longer, right? That's the universe consensus, which frankly has been wrong now for about a year. Um, and my question is really like, why do people consistently think that that will fail despite evidence to the contrary? For example, many people said, well, they will hike until they break something. Well, they, they broke things, right? They've broken multiple things and they, they patch it up on a case by case basis, a scalpel like approach, and then they'll keep going. So I'm wondering why that, that, that pro that, uh, the prospect of that sort of bifurcated approach will fail necessarily in people. Right, let me, well, let me tackle that real quick. So <laughs> uh, you, you answered your question in the question is that, yes, they are doing these things. They were tightening rates and they were reducing the balance sheet until they broke something. And when they broke something, what happened? The balance sheet immediately went up, right? So there, it, it's like the opposite. So when it comes to the Fed balance sheet, it takes the slow escalator down and a huge, fast escalator up when something breaks and something always seems to break. Uh, so yes, they reduced the balance sheet from like the nine trillion down to eight and a half, but it wasn't a substantial reduction. Uh, and that's, uh, and they may reduce it down to eight, maybe they'll get it down to seven and a half, but it's not a substantial reduction. And the next time something breaks is gonna be massive and the balance sheet is gonna go to 10, 10 trillion, 11 trillion. And the reason is, is because the Fed doesn't control fiscal policy. And the politicians continue to print whatever money they like and they rack up these giant deficits and they create policies like it was the government that pushed for home ownership of homeless people uh, and the banking system system just provided them with these loans. 
So uh, again, they're, they're, because the Fed doesn't control government policy and between the Fed breaking stuff and the, Fed, and the Treasury breaking stuff, the Fed's balance sheet always takes the elevator up. Yeah, the, the other thing I would point out, because uh, again, there's a lot I agree with that you're pointing out, Joe. Um, I think in the near term, they could take this surgical approach where they only increase their balance sheet by a little bit in the short term, and then they quote unquote fix the problem or, or prevent it from getting really, really big and problematic. And then they say, okay, look, we can shrink our balance sheet, sh- shrink the part that we expanded. And I think that's what's, what's happening right now. I, I, I think that can happen you know, multiple times. I, maybe where we differ is in terms of time frame. And when I look at a longer term view, uh, whether that's in the past or going forward, in the past, they've never been able to shrink the balance sheet in any meaningful way. And then when I look going forward, uh, something we've talked about multiple times here, the CBO, the US CBO last year came out with their 30-year forecast. They're going to come out with another one in a few months. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say. In 2052, they forecasted that the US debt will grow to just under $140 trillion. So I just look at that and I say, you know, if, if someone has a compelling case as to how in that, that's the trend, that's where we're heading. If the Fed is going to be able to become less involved in being a buyer and an owner of U.S. treasuries while U.S. debt grows from roughly 30 trillion to 140 trillion, uh, I, I would like to hear that case. I just don't see that happening. Yeah, I know it's going to be a lot worse than that. Like, that's the thing. I don't think the, the U.S. won't make it to 2050, right? Like that, they will not be able, they will default on their debt long before that because it'll hit that $100 trillion number probably by 2035 or 2040. Uh, I don't think they'll make it that far at current pace. And I'm asking, again, uh, there's nothing, the, the Fed balance sheet grew from $4 trillion, and I'm estimating numbers, from $4 trillion to $7 trillion during the pandemic, during 2020. Uh, it's not the Fed that shut down the world economy. It was the politicians. It was the government. Uh, they didn't have to shut down the world over COVID. They, I don't know, we, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories as to why they did it, but they did it. And the Fed balance sheet grew almost doubled, right? That's not coming back. They're not going to get it back below that. And there'll be another reason for them to do the same exact thing because the government will put the Fed in that position. And that's why the balance sheet of the Fed will never go down in a substantial way. Yeah, you're correct, Tone. Uh, roughly four trillion to seven trillion, and uh, so that is a roughly three trillion increase, and it happened in three months, from March of 2020 to June of 2020. Well, right, but don't think of it in trillions, right? You got to think of it in percentage terms. It almost doubled. It went up 75 percent, right? So the next time the guy, I mean, I don't think the government's going to do something stupid like the COVID lockdowns again, uh, but they'll definitely put the Fed in a position where it has to grow its balance sheet by 20 percent. Uh, in a matter of a year, and twenty percent from you know eight trillion, nine trillion, whatever we are, is a lot. Yeah, and where what what I think I want to say here is just it is important to remember that this I, I believe that growing of the balance sheet will happen. I, I think we're just going to see higher highs for the balance sheet for the coming ten, twenty, thirty years for the Fed. That doesn't mean it has to happen in the next twelve to twenty four months. So really important to, to throw that out there. They might be able to keep up this surgical approach for uh, a few years, but longer term, 
Uh, like I said, I don't see the balance sheet shrinking in any meaningful way. And if anything, I, I see it probably doubling or tripling. Can I throw a question out? I know we have like one minute to go. But what do people think for the last two weeks, uh, the Biden administration has started depleting the strategic oil reserve again by 2 million barrels each week. Where is that headed? Because they're supposed to start to replenish that. And yet they're, they're, they're depleting it because, you know, they, they got to keep the gas at the pump price low. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's very unfortunate. It's uh, politicizing the SPR. This is not what the SPR is meant to be used for. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of Keynesian economics, the analogy being, uh, that, you know, at, at least John Maynard Keynes himself believed that in the quote unquote good times, we're supposed to run a budget surplus. And it's only in the quote unquote bad times that we run a budget deficit. And then what do you actually get out of that, you know, more academic economic theory? It turns out you always run a budget deficit. You just run a smaller budget deficit in the good times and you run a gigantic budget deficit in the bad times. This, to me, the same thing's happening with the SVR. They start draining it. They say, oh, look, we're just doing this, you know, for this one time. And then when oil prices change, we're going to refill it. The time to refill it comes and they say, oh, no, actually, that would be kind of painful if we have to refill it. So let's just keep draining it. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's very unfortunate. Um, but I see Stephen with the hand up, would love to get your thoughts. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's strip mining in a sense. This is, uh, Alan Farrington wrote an article, the capital strip mine, and he poses the idea that you can increase GDP in two ways. You can grow. You know, you can just actually, so the metaphor would be you're a farmer and you plant seeds and you harvest crops and you grow. But you can also, if, if like, if we define GDP as like consumption and eating food, right? You could grow a bunch of food in your field and eat the food and that's growth. But you could also eat your seeds, right? Like you could eat your seeds and you're consuming the very productive resources that make growth possible. And, you know, what we're doing and, 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 you know, his argument, and I would agree is that, you know, we've increasingly leaned into strip mining our own capital to produce short-term growth. And, you know, it's the same exact ideology that has produced the SPR strategy, um, where we're going to deplete the strategic resource, a strategic resource that, you know, can't be refilled without causing some more problems, impacts. And uh, we're doing it just to mitigate these kind of very short-term pressures in a very artificial way, rather than investing human capital, time and ingenuity and resources into solving the fundamental supply bottlenecks that like got us into this fucking mess in the first place. And it's just a, it's just an ass backwards response. I'll throw out two quick thoughts on that. If I can, it's, it'd take me about 30 seconds. I have two, I have two responses. The first is that it's the, the cynical pessimistic side of me says this is just obnoxiously political and ridiculous, right? Uh, we're coming into election season. The next presidential election cycle is coming up. So the people in charge want to, you know, keep gas prices as cheap as possible, even though the economy is uh, struggling in some ways. It's not in other ways, uh, as Joe points out, right? Unemployment is still real low. Um, they're, they're clearly, I think, trying to buy votes through pretty stupid policy. So that's the, clinic, the cynical, pessimistic side. 
the uh, nefariously kind of smart side of it could be that they know that the Fed is going to bring the economy in the U.S. into a recession. If that happens, then we have a deflationary type event. If that happens, that brings the price of oil down, even though stores are low, even though OPEC plus is cutting production, blah, blah, blah. Um, all of that going on, even it, even even though the supply side is weak, if the demand side rapidly uh, drops, that's going to drop the price of oil much lower. And I could see them thinking from a strategic standpoint, if we know that we're going to bring a recession onto the economy, oil is going to be much cheaper uh, in whatever, a couple quarters from now or whatever. At that point, we'll step in and we'll uh, replenish the SPR. That's that's kind of the, I don't know that they're that smart. I don't know if they uh, have that much strategy uh, and brain power uh, in the White House, but maybe they do. Real, real quick. So I have a way more, uh, like, like maybe not cynical, but way more uh, nefarious uh, reasons. So to me, uh, yes, right now they're dropping it for political reasons because they have an election to win. Uh, and it's only actually, uh, what, 16, 18 months away. Uh, but another crazy strategy, which is so dangerous for America, is for the Democratic administration to deplete the strategic oil reserve as much as humanly possible. Uh, if they think they're going to lose the election, putting the Republicans in a very bad place where they may be forced to replenish that reserve under their watch or at, at, the, at least not be able to deplete it any further, uh, hence guaranteeing that there's going to be so much pain for the consumer under the Republican leadership that they're going to get back here four years later. Yeah, just to add a few things there, I I, th I just reject the idea that we would trust any administration to properly time oil prices. There, there's just way too many factors that are going to be out of their control if we believe that they're going to be able to forecast. So yeah, oil prices will be low in three to six months, and that's when we'll refill. Uh, there's just too many things that are out of their control. They could be wrong. And, and just to, th this is super important here too, the purpose of the SPR is meant to be for like truly catastrophic events like U.S. oil infrastructure is bombed or, you know, something crazy. Right. Wars and natural disasters like Katrina, for example, or Sandy. Yeah, that, that's what this is supposed to be for. This whole idea of like, oh, we're going to use it because you guys may remember this. There were some uh, some narratives floating around that we were draining the SPR, not for political reasons, but. Uh, meaning gas prices internally and elections, but we're doing it to harm Russia. And if we can keep oil prices, uh, you know, a little bit lower then we're harming Russia. And it's like, okay, maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. But I think the way more likely um, outcome for that would be, we're just going to drain our SPR. And Russia will say, hey, yeah, you made it a little more painful on us because you kept the price of oil lower. But, you know, we just worked through the pain. And now, you know, we're still fighting this conflict and now you have an empty SPR. And again, that's exactly not how the SPR is supposed to work. Uh, so you're not supposed to do it for these things and just hope that in three, six, nine months, oil prices will be low enough to refill. Then you layer on some of the stuff Tone mentioned where it, unfortunately, it may be one administration on one side says, yeah, we're just going to drain it because it's good for us. And then if the other side comes into power, it's going to be very painful for them to have to refill it. Maybe oil prices go back and, you know, towards 100. That's going to cause inflation to come up. It's going to look bad for them. 
yeah, it's unfortunate that everything in our society is being politicized these days. And it's unfortunate that the SPR is now on that list. Okay, we are a few minutes past here. We wanted to keep going. Um, really enjoyed this conversation. A lot of wide ranging topics as usual. Uh, we'll do closing comments. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Jeff, then we'll go Joe, Tone, uh, Stephen and Sam, a anything, or uh, Sam may have had to drop given we're past, but uh, Dr. Jeff, you wanna start? Anything you wanna leave us with? Oh man, it, this was a great conversation. I, I literally had like, like 40 things to talk about based on what uh, uh, what Stephen and Joe and Tone were talking about. Um, so great discussion, John. Thanks for leading it as usual. Um, I better not even go anywhere because we're trying to wrap up. So uh, thanks for having me up and I uh, look forward to the next time. Sounds good. Yeah, plenty covered so far. Um, we'll give uh, Joe anything you want to leave us with. No, not really. Thanks for having me up. I, I appreciate it. I really did enjoy the conversation today. And uh, I'm uh, uh, interested to see how uh, Bitcoin performs with OPEX here and over the weekend to see if we can find some sort of stabilization. But other than that, thanks again for everybody and the great conversation. Yeah, likewise. Tone, anything from you? And then we'll wrap it up with Steven. Yeah, I haven't mentioned Bitcoin at all, so let me close out with that. Uh, yeah, the I mean, the structure definitely looks bearish right now from a TA perspective. Uh, I'm now eyeing the 27,000 as potential support. Uh, below that, all the way down to 25. I just don't see any reason for Bitcoin to reverse. Of course, it can reverse at any price. Uh, but for me, um, I see support at 27 and then all the way down to 25 if 27 can't hold it. Uh, but I remain bullish. I think 25 is as low as we go on this cycle. Uh, and I'm still bullish on stock market and uh, Bitcoin overall uh, going into next month. Excellent. Steven, if we still have you, is there anything you want to leave us with today? I don't think so. We're, we're way over. Been a great conversation and I uh, hope everybody has an awesome weekend. Excellent. We will close it there. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I will keep it brief here. Uh, you've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Thank you for joining. We do this every weekday, Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern as a live Twitter spaces, but you can catch it as a podcast. Uh, Alex Stanzik, your usual host of Cafe Bitcoin, I guest hosted for Alex today. Uh, thank you guys for having me as a guest host. A reminder, MicroStrategy World, May 1 to, uh, 1 to 4 in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Swan 30 will get you a discounted ticket and reminder that Swan is sponsoring Toxic Happy Hour Pleb Party in Miami on May 18th. Um, with that, we will close it out. Hope everyone has a fantastic weekend. And please remember, get on the mission. Bye.